You're listening to The Human Factor from Inc. Magazine. I'm Eric Schoenberg, the CEO of Inc. and Fast Company. Now, when I went into journalism many years ago, it was considered to be a noble profession. This was the era of all the president's men and spotlight, movies that cemented the image of reporters as heroes standing up to abuses of power and the image of the profession as a bulwark of democracy and decency. Now, I still think of journalism that way, but fewer people do now than when I started. Only about 29% of Americans believe most of what they read in the news media. Finding the way back will fall on the next generation of journalists, which is why I'm especially proud to welcome today's guest, because it's his job to cultivate that next generation. Charles Whitaker is Dean and Professor at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, Media, and Integrated Marketing Communications. This follows an award-studded career in newspapers and magazines, culminating in his role as Senior Editor at Ebony Magazine. Charles has distinguished himself in thought leadership roles throughout the industry, but he's a particular pioneer in driving efforts to make newsrooms around the country more representative of the diversity of journalistic talent and of the diverse populations journalists serve. So I look forward to hearing more about that. Welcome, Charles Whitaker. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Well, it's nice to have you here. Now, I got to confess why I went into journalism all those years ago. What about it appealed to you? Well, <laughs> I tell the story a lot. Um, I decided I wanted to be a journalist when I was 10 years old. Um, as a uh, When I was in fourth grade, I had a teacher who read a poem that I wrote and said, my God, you're a wonderful writer. You should consider being a writer. Then when I, and that notion was cemented in my head at that moment. And then when I got to fifth grade, I'm, I'm thinking I'm gonna be a writer, I'm gonna be a writer, but writer didn't seem like a job. But I was, we had an assignment to do a story on, uh, that was pulled from a periodical. And I happened to choose Ebony Magazine. And I did a story that was written by a man named Charles Sanders, who I wound up working for when I went to work for Ebony Magazine. But he had been the Paris bureau chief for Ebony in the 1960s and 70s. And this was a story about expat African-Americans in Paris. And I thought, oh my God, you mean you get to write and live in Paris and meet amazing people? And from that moment on, I decided I was gonna be a journalist and I sort of never wavered uh, from that notion. Yes, and I'm sure it proved to be every bit as glamorous as, it's, as you thought it was in fifth grade. It was actually a lot of fun, yes. Well, that is true. That is true. Um, so it, it's it's not uncommon for people to leave Medill and go start their career at some small town newspaper. Um, there are fewer of those now. But but how did your career start? Um, I started at the Miami Herald. Actually, mm-hmm. I um, uh, went to a, a conference actually and met the uh, the managing editor of the Miami Herald, a guy named Pete Weitzel. And um, we had a conversation, just a casual conversation. I think it was over lunch. It wasn't even an official job interview. Um, but Pete's, Pete Weitzel sort of became my mentor and guide, and he recruited me to the Herald. And that was my my very first job working in suburban um, Dade County. So I covered four or five small municipalities north of Miami, between the the Miami and Fort Lauderdale and and Broward County border. So that was my first job, yeah. 
that's a, it's kind of starting at a, at a pretty prestigious place. That's I was very fortunate. <laughs> I had done several internships before that. I had interned at the Chicago Tribune and uh -huh. uh, the Norfolk Ledger Star. So I'd done internships before that. Um, so I had a body of work to show. And uh, so there, I have no idea why Pete Weitzel took such a liking to me, but he did. And um, he was very influential in my career in, in those early days. Well, it is always interesting to look back and see those turning points. When you joined the faculty at Medill in 93, uh, Netscape was still two years away from going public. The internet was not widely uh, uh, used and, the, and you know, <laughs> the broadband was, uh, you know, just a dream in somebody's, in somebody's fantasies. Um, you've seen tremendous changes in the industry. Um, I, I wonder, if that if you've seen over the years that you've been at Medill a change in the reasons that people go into journalism oh wow that's a that's a really good question yes i have though it all it has it has always gotten back to wanting to be storytellers i do think that by and large the students who are attracted to Medill and, and to journalism. The students that I see want to be storytellers of some sort. They, it's why I was attracted to journalism. I wanted to tell stories and these students often want to tell stories as well. Now, the change I've seen is that once upon a time, you know, post Watergate, Woodward and Bernstein, they sort of wanted to, to take down the man and uh, sort of challenge authority. I find contemporary students really want to use journalism as a force for good. I'm hesitant to say they think that they want to be advocacy journalists because that carries a lot of baggage. But in their heart of hearts, they sort of think journalism can right wrongs in some way, shape, or form. And a tremendous number of students. In fact, our you know our, our enrollment has actually gone up. It, it went up quite a bit in during the Trump years because so many students saw journalism under assault, but they also saw it as a force for good. And they've said, there's something about that, appeal, that, that appeals to me and I wanna be a part of that. Well, that's great. That's a wonderful answer, Charles. And I, I think journalism has always been a force for good at, at, at its best. Anyway. Yes. It can sometimes be abused. Um, over, and we can get into that. Over all those years, um, how has teaching of journalism evolved? Well, I tell people when I started teaching journalism, we taught writing, reporting, and editing, um, a little bit of broadcast. Um, and that was what we did. That was what we trained students to do. We now try to leave students who are prepared prepared to not only write and report, um, but to also, every student needs to do some video. They need to have some elementary coding knowledge. They need to know how to build a website. They should know how to edit video as well as edit text. Um, so there's a whole range of skills that we now try to equip students with before they leave in the same amount of time which is incredibly challenging because we don't have them for any more time than we had them before, but we are now trying to prepare them with so many more skills than we did in the early days when I was teaching students. That's right, that, that makes a lot of sense. The, the ways in which the internet has disrupted media over, over 
the course of your career are, are, are legion. And the, I mean, to, to pull some easy examples, um, uh, the internet took away classified ads from the, what used to be the cash cows for local newspapers. Um, advertising is more efficient when you have insights that the social media platforms provide compared to traditional forms of journalism. But rather than talk about how technology changed the profession, I'd like to talk a little bit about how the industry maybe inadvertently contributed to its own decline. So, well, I, I wanted to focus first on business models. What about the business model of journalism made it? Well, that, that's what I was going to focus on. Yeah, okay. that's what I was going to focus on first, actually, because I do think one of the things, and, and I, I, I sort of, this is my sawhorse, I'm talking about this all the time to, to people. One of the things that we have done in media is, you know, we have this business model that is based on a third party payer supporting the industry, right? So it's not as though the people who actually consume the media are supporting it. We're relying on advertising. We were relying on advertisers, class, classified or display, whatever form of advertising there was. And what that really did was undervalue the thing that we produce. We have the only one of the few business models where the product is produced incredibly expensively. And then we try to give it away to people so that this other party can reach those people as well. And what that does is condition people not to appreciate either the craft and skill, but also the importance of journalism. And we don't talk about that nearly enough. When we talk about the loss of, say, local news, we tend to talk about the loss of jobs and the loss of um, of, of a watchdog to a certain extent. We don't talk about a community kind of losing its heart and soul when it loses its um, its local newspaper. And that actually is what happens. And therefore, people don't have not been conditioned to value news. They think it's it should be free like air. And you know, when they hit a paywall, they're annoyed because they don't think that this thing, this this very important thing to the maintenance of the democracy is something that should be paid for. And to a certain extent, I get we have recoiled from that notion as well, because we want journalism to be available to everyone, right? We don't want it to be only available to those folks who can pay for it. And I totally appreciate that. But we've got to change the conversation around the value of news and information and make the public sort of think more about what this thing what this thing is really worth and what it's worth to you and what you're willing to pay for it in order to, to uh, have access to that information. And that's just a, a whole different conversation we need to have about the, the, the worth and value of, of journalism and information in society. That is, is very interesting. And uh, you know, I'd point out that social media platforms like Facebook, for example, are also given away for free right. uh, and make their money off advertising but they have maybe a, they have a leg up on on advertising models just because they know so much about their readers absolutely about to say they are so they're selling they are selling so much more than eyeballs we just sold eyeballs mm -hmm. they're selling a ton of information and data about those those individuals not just eyeballs and again we that's a game that we didn't enter you know we collect a lot of information about you know our our uh, subscribers and users as well we didn't use that effectively enough 
when we were thinking about the business model. And so we allowed the, the social media platforms and Google to come in and just sort of usurp that territory from us. By the time we realized what we had, they already had laid siege to the landscape and there was nothing left for us to claim. <laughs> yeah, well, clearly the social media platforms didn't necessarily realize what they had either. That's they, true. But now we're paying the price for that. We are. Um, so we've talked about business models as part of the reason for the decline in trust in, in news media. Is there anything about the practices of journalism that you would say yeah. that you would wish we had done differently? That could Absolutely. We And we're talking about this. You talked about me being a champion of diversity. Um, and, you know, people now, when they when they tend to discuss lack of trust in media, they they tend to automatically gravitate toward a left versus right conversation. You know, people on the right uh, don't trust the liberal media. And, you know, they think all of the folks working in media, media is this hotbed of uh, socialism uh, and, uh, and, and liberalism. But if you talk to any, any progressive as well or any marginalized person in society, they don't trust the media any more than the people on the right do. And I think that's because over the years, um, our, our news organizations have been way too homogenous, that we have had too many people who look alike and think alike, or even the people who were from diverse backgrounds who we brought in were still people who looked and, and thought and sounded a lot like the people who were already there. And so we haven't had enough diversity of thought or, um, or demographics within our newsrooms. And as a result, we have painted with some very broad brushstrokes um, about various communities and, and various and, and on various issues. We haven't always had the cultural competence. We haven't always um, written and covered stories with as much nuance as we could or should. All things that we're talking about in our classes now as we sort of interrogate our practices more. Um, the notion of objectivity sometimes, and, and not the, I, I believe, again, I, I talk about the closest approximation to truth rather than objectivity, but the notion of ob objectivity, this idea that the reporter is a blank slate and is simply, you know, crafting a story um, that pulls uh, without any sense, without any bias, without any lens that is coloring the way that story is crafted is completely false. And we haven't been, again, very transparent about that either. And so all of those things have contributed to the lack of trust in media. You know, there, uh, one of my journalism professors, I'm a Northwestern Medill product, said to me very, very early on that everyone who practices journalism should have some journalism practiced on them. And I, once upon a time, served on a school board. I, my, I grew up, my kids grew up in, in Oak Park in, uh, in a suburb of Chicago. And when I was living there, I was, I was very involved in schools. And I used to have journalists write about me all the time. And I was like, oh my God, this is why people hate the media. <laughs> I've been misquoted, right? This is taken completely out of context. And yeah, I think we all should have some journalism practiced on us every now and then. It would give us a much different perspective on the way we do things and how we depict uh, certain issues. You know, we parachute into a lot of stories without, without sufficient background and try to write about them. Um, and just butcher them terribly. So there are lots of things, there are lots of ways in which we shot ourselves in the foot. Um, and, and 
the difficulty now, you know, once upon a time when there were only three networks and very few and lots of gatekeepers to to the news, um, people were trapped and they could go to, you only had certain outlets that you could turn to. Now with the proliferation of outlets, good, bad, and terrible, people can burrow into their echo chambers. They can, you know, have their biases confirmed and on whatever platform they want, and they don't need us as much. And that's contributing to the distrust as well. Um, uh, I love, I the, love idea the idea of journalism, journalism practice on journalists. It is eye-opening. It is. Uh, and it does, I, I think it does teach you respect for the power that you have and absolutely uh, and it necessitates a considerable amount of care, which we all should have. Um, let's talk about that question of objectivity. I had I was taught that that was something that you should strive for. Um, it was the gold standard when you and I were in school and being um, and, and, and training to become journalists. Yeah. Do you think it's impossible to achieve or is it just unprofitable to try to achieve? <laughs> I think it's a false concept, right? I mean, it, 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 the concept, again, posits that the journalist is a blank slate and they are going and they are constructing this, uh, this narrative um, only based on what they have, have observed. And, and as a blank slate, they're this automaton who's just simply recording the events and, and faithfully um, relaying them back. And that's not quite the way it happens, right? Again, we are processing these events through our own experiences, our own lived experiences, and that's shaping the, the way the narrative uh, is formed. Um, and so it's not that objectivity is um, is a bad thing to strive for. I just think when we talk about it, we have to acknowledge that it's a it's a goal that's very difficult to achieve. And again, what we're trying to achieve, and again, I, I hate to keep saying this, but I always fall back to, we're trying to achieve a, an approximation of truth. We're trying to get as close to truth as we can and gather as much information as we can to um, relay information about what happened, what we've observed, or what we're analyzing in a way that is fair and balanced and accurate. That's what we're, we're striving for. Um, and often, and sometimes we're not going to get that right. And sometimes as it is processed through our lens, filtered through our lens, it is going to be colored in a way, sometimes very unconsciously, it is going to be colored in a way that people will see differently or, or take offense to. And we need to acknowledge that that's a possibility, um, talk about that openly and transparently and have, you know, we need to be more in dialogue with our audience, again, about our processes and about what we're trying to do so that they have a better understanding of what we're getting at, at what we're uh, trying to accomplish here and a better understanding of, of how this thing came together. Okay, all right, good. I. Um... I think one of the blind spots of our industry and, and a contributing factor, as you, you mentioned earlier, in the biases that, that journalists have traditionally taken to their subjects is the lack of diversity in newsrooms. The industry has belatedly come to terms with this reality of, of the way it's been structured for, for decades, not Decade. centuries. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you seen improvements? Um, so I tell people, I, I feel as though I entered journalism 
at a time when I when we were seeing tremendous improvement. Um, you know, I at the risk of dating myself into journalism in the early 1980s um, and came in at a time when there was a huge diversity push, certainly in newspapers and broadcast. The magazine world actually was woefully far behind in, in signing on. But um, early 80s broadcast newspapers, um, you know, were really trying and and doing a fairly good job, not a perfect job, of, of trying to increase the numbers. The, a, uh, the American Society of Newspaper Editors was doing its annual um, uh, uh, census of newsrooms. And again, the numbers were always bad but they were transparent about the fact that the numbers were bad and they were trying to bully people into doing better. And there were, were um, uh, entities that were trying to respond to that. As things have gotten worse on the business side, as the industry has contracted, as many of the people of my generation who should at this, at this moment in time be ascending to the top of mastheads, who should be in positions of power uh, and authority and influence, who should be mentors to other people um, of color in newsrooms. Uh, those people were pushed out as the industry started to crater, as the industry, as jobs became more scarce. And so we're not in many ways, I think we are looking worse now than we did 30, 35 years ago when the business was doing better. Um, and one of the things I'm also trying to work on is I don't think the pipeline is particularly robust either. I don't think we are encouraged, there are enough young people who are encouraged to consider the business just because the news about the news business is so bad. You know, if the president of my university, I, I love him dearly, but he drives me crazy because he says things like, you know, oh, whenever I meet Medill parents, I tell them, oh, I'm so sorry for you. Uh, and I'm like, why would you say that? And, you, know, said, you know, your kids are not going to get a job. Um, <laughs> That's not entirely true. There are actually all these new entities that are popping up. There are lots of new ways that we are. I tell people journalism will always exist. We may not get. We may not know what the business model is going to be, but journalism is not going away. Um, and so, but but hearing the bad news about the industry is really discouraging, particularly to people from low-income first-generation families who are going to, you know, invest a lot of money in education. They want that investment to pay off. And if they see no payoff in this business, then it it's just a labor of love. And many of them can't afford to do that. Many of them can't afford unpaid internships and low-paid internships that will help them get the experience to enter the business. And so, you know, the pool of talent right now is not nearly as deep as it should be. And that's something that I, as a dean of a journalism school, am very, very um, passionate about addressing. And, and I, not because I want them all to come to Medill, we can't take them all, but I want to inspire more young people the way I was inspired to consider this business, to think about this at an earlier age so that we can deepen the pool and um, make a difference. If not, you know, in the next, two or three years, certainly in the next five to 10 years, I want us to really look very different than we do right now. What should publishers do about it? It sounds like you, you would like to reach, you know, early on in the K through 12 um, part of people's lives. So what about existing? But I think we've got a, 
I think we've got to hire at all levels. You, you, you're right. I, I don't think that we can hire. We can only. I, I'm in. I'm determined to deepen the pool and to start very young. Mm -hmm. But I do think in order to make a difference right now, we've got to start looking at some people from alternative backgrounds and consider how they might enter the business as well. How can we encourage some people? The, the industry has oftentimes been relatively forgiving of people who may not have come from traditional backgrounds, but have something, you know, have a nose for news, as they say, or have a passion for storytelling, as they say. How do we encourage some of those people now to, to enter the business? How do we take people from some adjacent fields and um, get them the training that they need to sort of enter at least at a middle management le level so that the young people can also see people above them um, that they can aspire to become as well. So it is important that we hire at all sorts of levels, not just try to, to grow the, the business uh, from the entry level. Um, I'd like to segue back to the question of trust and uh, about new business models that are emerging that, that may be beneficial or may erode that trust even further. Uh, one that comes to mind is Substack, but Substack is sort of all of a piece of a kind of disintermediation of journalistic institutions between yeah. the writer and the public. So you could, you know, you could have your own right. Twitter account, you could have your own yeah. Facebook and, and separate your own reputation from that. Right. The institution, Substack just sort of makes that easier to monetize. Easier. Yeah. Um, how does that play into the is that helpful or is it something that worries you in, in terms of uh, build, rebuilding trust in in the profession? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm somewhat agnostic because I just want to see how this plays out. On the one hand, um, the beauty of the digital age is that lots of barriers to publishing have been eroded and lots of people can build their own brand and sort of um, disseminate their own messages and reach new audiences that may not have been reached with a, a really authentic uh, message, if you will. Um, on the other hand, um, this proliferation of people and voices, many of whom, um, I, I tell people anyone can hang a shingle and call him or herself a journalist. I think what journalism school grounds you in is an appreciation. It's not so much the skills. The skills are really important, but an appreciation for the history, the ethics, the um, sort of thinking about the responsibility of the business. That's an indoctrination that I think is really important. And, and not having institutions to help with that is problematic to me and somewhat troubling. Um, but. I, I'm taking a wait and see attitude about how this ultimately plays out. When the uh, the president of the university tells Medill parents that they feel sorry for them, um, they're assuming a, a future for journalism that is a continue straight line to decline, I guess, continuation yeah. of the decline in mainstream media, but it's not the full picture. So when you, talk about the future of journalism and what lies in wait for the students uh, mm -hmm. who are going to be the leaders of mid-21st century journalism. What's the future you paint for them? 
Um, so I'm very bullish on the future um, because we can tell, I tell people, you know, when I entered journalism, I was a writer. That's, and that's all I thought of, my, a writer reporter. That's what I thought of myself as. We can tell stories in so many more dynamic and exciting ways now. We can reach people um, and, and touch their hearts and minds and imaginations in so many more spectacular ways. And I think those possibilities um, just make journalism such an exciting field to enter right now. And I, I tell students, I wish I was their age so that I could, so I'm almost too old to be trained that way now, but um, that I could think in the ways that they will be thinking about um, the storytelling. Um, and I think the new platforms, um, the, the 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 merging of technology and, and storytelling although i still i'm a words a word person and i still love words and i still love traditional text-based storytelling as well but the integration of that with amazing images and um animation and and data visualization is just a spectacular thing to behold it makes the experience so much more dynamic and rewarding and i'm excited to see what they will do and the directions they'll take that in and i'm convinced that they will figure out how to monetize that as well <laughs> that's great i i'd love your optimism i i well i feel the same way about a profession that's been incredibly rewarding to me not not necessarily monetarily but the great brands like ink and fast company and and so many others absolutely i just mentioned my two favorites uh, yeah. <laughs> that they can have um what's your advice to students now about how to build a successful career um to be open to all of the, what we're trying to teach students now is to be unafraid of change, to be open to all of the possibilities that may present themselves to you, to not be necessarily tied to platforms, um, but to always remember the ethical standards, remember to be an, an empathetic, um, a human-centric storyteller to remember that this ultimately is about people and the effect that um, policies and uh, 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 actions are having on people to, to hold that central to what you're doing. Um, those are some of the things that I, I like to tell students. Yeah. Great, so never lose sight of the mission. That is Absolutely. That's right. Okay. Thank you. That's a much better way of expressing it. <laughs> it it's also a, a great way to, to end this conversation. Charles, it has been fascinating. It's been my thank pleasure, you. Eric. Thank you so thank much for being so on the show. And thank you for the work you do grooming the next generation of journalists. It, it, it is the best work I've ever done. Work of democracy. Yeah. <laughs> thank um, you so much. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Human Factor. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss the next episode. The Human Factor is produced by Joshua Christensen with help from Blake Odom.